Welcome to the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Press 1 for an English-speaking counselor. Press 2 for a span- Um, <clears throat> hi. I'm, I'm, I'm having some very bad thoughts. Thank you for calling, sir. You're with me now, and everything's gonna be okay. First, can you tell me your name? Well, I'm the, uh, uh, the Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court? Do you mean you work for the Supreme Court, sir? Well, sort of, I suppose. I represent the majority. Can we just say that? Okay, but do you have a name? Okay, well, let's just say my name is Bob. All right, Bob. Just tell me what's going on. Well, you leaked this really big court opinion. Are you referring to the Dobbs v. Jackson opinion? You mean you've heard of it? You could say that. I was a first-year law student before I was forced to drop out. Well, then you know. Look, all we wanted to do was strike down Roe v. Wade. That's it! We didn't want to chloroform the principle of the judicial review. You know what that is? Yes, I know what that is. I got a 180 on my LSAT. Wow. I think I only got 132. I barely passed. Well, okay, but the, but the reason I bought this pistol at Walmart this morning is that the leaked opinion's logic may eventually destroy 150 years of civil liberty opinions. So, I have a daughter and three jobs. I haven't read that 98-page opinion yet. You're saying the leaked Dobbs opinion potentially blows up judicial review? <laughs> That's correct! The Supreme Court made up judicial review in 1803! There is nothing ta- in the Marbury Madison opinion! There is nothing textual in Article 3 of the Constitution to support judicial review! The bastards just made it up! They made it up! They pulled it out of their asses! And no one stopped them! But judicial review, at least after the Civil War, gave us a free society. No, you're right, you're right. I agree, it did. But we just killed it! We just killed it in this Dobbs opinion! Are you suggesting if the leaked Dobbs opinion becomes law, any other Supreme Court opinion in U.S. history that isn't explicitly textual can be thrown out? That's exactly what I'm saying! Everything goes away! Everything! Schools, marriage, women, contraception, minorities, my God! (laughs) God, what have we done? Can someone please help me? Another call coming in. Sorry. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. So the opener you just heard, and you hear on every episode of this pod, itemizes 10 categories of controversy we covered in this podcast. One of those things is courtroom drama. And there is no courtroom larger or more impactful on most Americans than the United States Supreme Court. So, on the occasion of a very rare leaked opinion, just last week, 
we're going to tip our toe into the dreadful gumbo of the United States Supreme Court decision-making. My name is Thad Helsley, and I am joined, as always, by co-host Ellie. Ellie, most of our audience knows by now that you and your husband live in the great state of Alaska and are commercial airline pilots by day. But this weekend, I I thought we could just kind of ease into this, kind of an icebreaker. This weekend, you participated in some kind of state competition with small planes. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So we didn't compete or we didn't really participate in the actual competition. So a STOL competition stands for short takeoff and landing. Okay. And um, the competition that happens every year in May is in Valdez, which a lot of people know the Valdez, the city just from the Valdez oil spill. But uh-huh. in um, in Alaska, it's very well known um, for small airplane competition where a lot of people kind of come out of hibernation and just come and compete to see who can take off their airplanes and land their airplanes in the shortest distance possible. So um, we don't compete. We just go with friends. We go to socialize and hang out. And it's a beautiful area of the state. And it was just really fun to see everything starting to green up and you know, you just kind of start to see bear tracks coming out of the dens and you get to explore a new part of the of the state. So it was it was awesome. It was really fun. And we had a blast. But yeah, it was it was awesome. It was really great to see everybody, you know, like I said, kind of coming out of hibernation and just see a lot of friends from last year. So yeah, it was it was good. Cool, cool. And we are pleased to welcome back New York's multi-year super lawyer, David Grover from the firm of Grover and Fensterstock. Welcome back to the pod, David. Hello, Thad. Hello, Ellie. Thank you so much. Always happy to be here. David, you're becoming a regular on this podcast. I mean, it was only two episodes ago we did the thing on Natalie Wood. Should Ellie and I just turn this thing over to you and let you run it? <laughs> well, it might be a little difficult and awkward to ask myself questions, but sure, why not? It, <laughs> it just seems like your episodes are more popular than all the others. So I don't know <laughs> if that has anything to do with you or whatever. The great um, hosts we have. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we are also joined by our brilliant AI engine, Bernice. Thank you. You used the word Supreme Court in your introduction. To a computer like myself, anything related to the Homo sapiens race can only laughably be referred to as Supreme. The Supreme Court is an oxymoron like military intelligence, jumbo shrimp, act natural, old boy, or the scandal sheet podcast. Thanks for that, Bernice. So, Ellie, David, and Bernice, today we're talking about our friends in the United States Supreme Court. It seems to me that most regular people... Uh, for the most part, ignore the highest court because most of their decisions are pretty arcane. I think they get something like 3,000 case requests each year, but they only end up taking like 75 to 80. And despite what the media tells us, most of those decisions are either unanimous or very close, like 8-1 or 7-2. There are nine justices, by the way. But But there are a few categories of cases that always get national attention. And that's when you see people protesting outside the building. Um, Actually, a guy I know who works there in an administrative capacity tells me there is a line item in their budget for 
uh, porta potties that they put out there just for the protesters. Isn't that nice? <laughs> I I'm very impressed by that, and it makes a lot of sense, like to have those out there so that you're not like cleaning up poop off the sidewalks afterwards. It does, but also, you know, does it enable more people to come protest because they know that there's going to be a bathroom there? <laughs> You know, Good point. Like Good point. I'm not saying protesting's bad or anything. I'm just saying, like, are are they having more protesters because they offer porta potties? Mm. I don't know. I mean, could you imagine those protests without the porta potties? I mean, there would be so much. Well, this is a family show. Maybe we shouldn't go that far, but there'll be. <laughs> it it would wouldn't be, be pretty. I guess people would have to come with catheters or uh, adult diapers or but something. I remember, yeah. first of all, look at downtown San Francisco. Like, that's not family-friendly, any part of it. And two, like, I've, I mean, I'm just talking about, like, the poop on the sidewalks in San Francisco. But, you know, also, like. <laughs> right. I, I know. You know, I remember when I was in, I like, I graduated from high school and I went to Times Square so David and your neck of the woods for New Year's Eve. And we stood out there for like 10 hours. I don't know how I did it, like without going to the bathroom. Oh my God, you guys yeah, did that? Yeah, there was me and my mom and my brother. There was like no. Bathroom. Well, I always ask myself, is are there bathrooms? No. Or do you just have you to just hold, hold it? it? Like you have to come into the, when you go into the gates, you can't leave. Oh so my you're just God. There, you're stuck in the gate. Like people brought, people ordered pizza to the gate people like i think we're wearing like diapers and stuff i think wow so there's no bathroom there was i mean it was a long time ago but i think i do i think there were no bathrooms i'm almost positive there were no bathrooms so you can't leave and come back it's either go in right this would have been in 2010 so i mean unless something's changed i mean there was yeah there were no bathrooms like you came in and you couldn't leave Oh my God! Yeah. Now, 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 Thad. Before you, you, before you ask me the question about Times Square and New Year's Eve, don't bother. <laughs> People who live in New York City never go to Times Square on New Year's Eve. I've been living here for decades. Really? I know hundreds of people from growing from being here forever. I don't think I know one person who's ever gone to Times Square on New Year's Eve. Well. You know, actually, I can kind of understand that because I am a transplant to the Washington, D.C. area. And when I came here, the first thing I did was go to all the monuments. But all the people that were actually born here have never been Mm -hmm. to any of the monuments unless it was like a school trip that they had to go to. But they would never voluntarily go to the Lincoln Memorial or any of that stuff. No. I've mixed the Statue of Liberty since uh, I was a little kid. That's it. Was that a school trip then? Uh, a school trip, absolutely. Right, okay, right, yeah. right. So, okay, speaking of Manhattan, David, you're a high-profile working attorney in Manhattan, New York City, and you defend clients every day. So on the subject of the Supreme Court, do are there any rulings that actually affect your professional life or the lives of your clients on a regular basis? You know, from a New York standpoint, not really, because there aren't a lot of major New York laws that seem to be big controversial topics with the Supreme Court that get overturned. I think there was maybe a gun law recently, but outside of that, it's really other states. But, you know, us New Yorkers are affected just like the rest of the country, right? These Some of these cases are really important. People don't realize how big they are, whether they're campaign finance, whether it's gerrymandering, the Voting Rights Act, gay marriage, even Bush v. Gore helped uh, select a president. So there are massive 
Supreme Court decisions that affect all of us, but it doesn't feel like New York in particular feels it any more than anywhere else. Okay. Okay. Very good point. So, Ellie, what about you? I mean, do you feel that these people are in your face? I I mean, they, there have been some commercial aviation rulings here and there, but do you feel like, oh, I hate these guys? Um, I mean, the... It feels a lot of times like the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administ- Federal Aviation Administration, has like their own like just autonomous little ruling body. Like it just feels like whatever rules they make go completely unchecked by everybody else in the government. So I think sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. And I'm sure my like aviation legislation professor would cringe right now by me saying, I don't think. I'm really affected by the Supreme Court. Like they're not up in my face every day, but yeah, I, I'm sure they are in some way, but it doesn't feel like it. I'm not, I don't feel like any specific laws are, are affecting my everyday life at work at least. Mm -hmm. So, but then every year, like, you know, David was saying kind of, he went down a punch list of like a decade every year. They usually get a day uh, case that gets national attention, like about religious freedom, you know, can they put up a nativity scene or a big menorah in a public park or workplace issues like can a transgender man or woman go into this particular bathroom or whatever it is? And I guess someone has to decide these things. But, you know, when I looked it up, these these nine justices, each of them make about two hundred and fifty five thousand bucks a year. Uh, I think the chief makes a little bit more, which is pretty decent when you consider they only work like nine months a year. They're sort of like school teachers, right? So, I mean, am I nuts? Taxpayers that are on the hook for like when you throw in the clerks and the coffee maker and, and everything else, we're probably on the hook for about 10 million bucks a year. I mean, do we really need a Supreme Court? I mean, except for the fact that the Constitution says, well, we got to have one. But do we need one? We really do. We really do. Okay. And, and, right. and the reason we do, you got to think about it, right? Okay, yes, the Supreme Court gets, I think, actually about 8,000 requests every year for cases. Oh, is it 8,000? Yeah. I broke down three. I was uh, way off. I'm right? pretty sure that's what it is. And you're right. They take about wow. 8,000. Wow. But the reason it's so important is really, you think about the three ways the Supreme Court obtains cases, their jurisdiction. One is cases that go through the federal courts, right? Uh, federal district courts, U.S. Court of Appeals. Now, if there's no Supreme Court, then each appellate court around the country would have final say about every type of case. I'm not sure okay. that's something you want. Not only that, okay. but what if you have different appellate courts around the country having different inconsistent decisions? So you do need that one Supreme Court to kind of solve those inconsistencies, at least in theory. Okay. They also receive cases. Uh, they have actual jurisdiction, direct jurisdiction on state for state cases. And the reason you need that is because, well, if there's a state versus a state, where would they ha- where would that case be decided? And if it's in one of those states, well, it might be biased. If it's a Supreme Court, well, now you have one in theory neutral place where the states could bring their own could bring their own cases against another state. And the other way is whenever a court goes to the state, a case goes to the state courts, the Supreme Court can take jurisdiction on that case after it reaches that state's highest court. So now you have something to go beyond the state court. So I do think that despite all the criticism that the Supreme Court rightfully gets, 
they do actually have a very important function for our country. Okay. Well, good point. I mean, Ellie, what do you think? You have I think, opinion? yes, we need one because of all the things David just said. I, <laughs> I'm not smart enough for law school. I'm stepping that. <laughs> and I don't remember like the seventh grade social studies <laughs> class. <laughs> so, yes, because I'll trust the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's definitely, I mean, David listed some cases. I would add to that, you know, stuff that happened before any of us were born or maybe I was a baby in a crib like, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education that said non-white children could go to, uh, you know, previously all white schools or or loving for versus Virginia that struck down the prohibition against interracial marriage laws. That was just in 1967. I mean, can you believe it? I mean, I've dated new, I almost married a girl that was African-American. I'd be in jail right now (laughs) serving a life sentence if it wasn't for that. So I don't know. I mean, they're, yeah, they they do some. Yeah. That's where, that's where people are like, Oh my God, can you believe it's 2022 and we don't have, fill in the blank, whatever their complaint is. And it's like, I'm, I'm all for progress. However, it's like, yeah, only 55 years ago, you know, like a lot of crazy things were still illegal. So progress is slow. It's a big country. It's a lot of wheels turning. You gotta, there's just a lot of movement that needs to happen to just make change. Right. Right. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not as easy as we think it is. You know, no one wants to be in a car or a motorcycle accident or a slip and fall that causes physical or mental damage. And even construction accidents are on the rise today. But if you or a friend or family member are injured, you need a professional and understanding law firm that has experience in getting the most for their clients' injuries. And you can find all of that at the law firm of Grover and Fensterstock. They are a premier personal injury firm located in New York City, and their track record is excellent. They have years of experience working and winning for their clients. Now, they offer a free consultation, and they only get paid when you get paid. So how do you get in touch with them? Well, you call David Grover at 1-866-99-LAWYER, and mention that you were referred by the Scandal Sheet Podcast, one of your favorite podcasts, of course. So David Grover at Grover and Fenster Stock, 1-866-99-LAWYER, 866-99-L-A-W-Y-E-R. You'll be glad you called. And I guess we've talked enough about, um, you know, uh, the Supreme Court's big decisions and and I guess uh, we're going to have to have uh, the inevitabilities. We're going to have to keep them around for a while. But, you know, one decision, which is sort of the reason that this we're doing this episode, is that uh, there was this leaked opinion, and uh, it all goes back to a decision that was made in 1972 by the Supreme Court, and it was called Roe versus Wade. At the time... 37 states had laws that prohibited abortion, either completely or in most cases. They may have had exceptions for incest, rape, life of the mother, et cetera, et cetera. So, Bernice, for our audience that doesn't know, what is an abortion and what are those associated laws? 
Abortion is the termination of a pregnancy by removal or expulsion of an embryo or fetus. Abortion laws and cultural or religious views of abortions are different around the world. In some areas, abortion is legal only in specific cases such as rape, fetal defects, risk to a woman's health, or incest. There is debate over the moral, ethical, and legal issues of abortion. Those who oppose abortion often argue that an embryo or fetus is a person with a right to life, and thus equate abortion with murder. Those who support the legality of abortion often argue that it is part of a woman's right to make decisions about her own body. Others favor legal and accessible abortion as a public health measure. Abortion techniques and practices have a long and varied history throughout the globe in all known human civilizations throughout recorded time. In Europe and the United States, safe abortion techniques were tolerated and expanded until the mid-19th century. In the, the United States, in mid-19th century, a wave of primarily Christian, religious revivalism, advocated laws to end or restrict abortion. This was part of a much larger social and religious movement to also restrict or end the consumption of alcoholic beverages, and legalized gambling, and abolish the enslavement of African Americans in certain states. Efforts to abolish or constrict these activities eventually led to the American Civil War 1861-1865, Prohibition and the rise of organized crime 1919-1933. Yet, by 1972 many states still had laws either restricting abortion or criminalizing it. A Supreme Court ruling, known today as Roe v. Wade, was passed down in 1972. It said states were unable to prohibit abortion in the first trimester of a woman's pregnancy, approximately 12 weeks. We don't take anything for granted. Not everybody knows. For all I know, there's fourth graders that listen. So anyways, so uh, David Nelly the 1972 ruling by the Supreme Court, which basically, uh, again, it was called Roe v. Wade, um, was not very controversial at the time. It was pretty decisive. It was a 7-2 decision. Five of the justices in the majority were conservatives. Four had been appointed by President Richard Nixon. Okay, so it wasn't like, you know, boom, you know, the, the wagon started circling right after that. It would actually take almost 10 years more for this to trickle up to genuine opposition among the American electorate. And I think it was during the third Reagan campaign where he actually won. But I don't want to talk about abortion per se, and I don't think we do either. I mean, there's certainly been hundreds of podcasts and articles and documentaries. I mean, just in the last week, it's a controversial issue and none of us are really experts on it. I mean, do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a budget line item for porta potties outside my house, so I definitely like to <laughs> avoid protesters. Therefore, let's just avoid all the, let's avoid all the controversial topic about Roe v. Wade. I mean, if we had haters right. from Sarah Palin, like I can't imagine how much hate I know. get. I from, know. Like they'd be they'd be Wade. sending you pictures of me being dragged through a gravel parking lot, <laughs> you know, on the back of a, a truck. Yeah. 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 I mean, David, what about you? Think think we should just yeah. Well, well, look, we could do ten shows and not come up with anything. All we would accomplish is losing one half of our audience. So I think it's going to need to kind of skip the, uh, that third rail. Okay. Okay. So we don't have to, but this case, um, is very interesting. Yeah. It, it, it touches upon Roe v. Wade and another one called, 
um, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which sort of reaffirmed Road and abortion, abortion rights generally. But but this new case, this leaked opinion, is about a totally new case that Mississippi passed back in 2018. So it's already been almost four years, and it's called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And I guess what makes this case interesting, beyond the controversy of abortion, is that the first draft of this opinion, and it's one heck of a first draft, 98 pages long, it's really, really detailed, it's got all these footnotes, it was somehow leaked to the media. So, I mean, David, the Supreme Court, as far as, at least as far as I know, runs a very tight ship. And, and like we said before, I do uh, follow this court I have for, for a number of decades, and I've lived in Washington, D.C. since 1989. And, you know, everybody pulls their hair out about leaks. You know, the presidents, Congress, Senate, blah, blah, blah. And, there's t- and, and I was in the news media like Len and our, our, our other friend, uh, Robert. We've got 10,000 journalists in a twin square mile area here in D.C., right? They all want a story, and they will do anything to get it. Um, and it doesn't matter if they work for Fox, New York Times, blah, blah, blah. They just want a story. But but the journalists will always tell me that the federal government leaks like the Titanic. It's just an endless series of leaks, which they take advantage of, with the exception of the Supreme Court. They can't get diddly out of these guys, or I mean, at least historically. I'm always told, forget it. You're never going to get any. These guys are sworn to secrecy. They must like take a blood oath with the devil. They are never going to tell you anything. So I can't remember a big decision, right, left, or center, being leaked, David. Any insight into how this got out? This is not your father's Supreme Court, Dad. This is okay. a very, very different world we're living in. It used okay. to be a lot more collegial. It was a lot more legal. It was a lot more analysis, a lot more middle-of-the-road people. This, in my opinion, the Supreme Court has become almost like Congress. This is mm. politics. This is cutthroat. This is a zero-sum game. We used to have a, ju- a lot of just like Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember her. Yeah, people like that who, yeah, she may have her viewpoints, but she decided cases on what she thought the law was, even if it wasn't her viewpoint in terms of her politics. These are now politicians for the most part. I got to tell you, Justice Roberts might be the closest thing right now to Sandra Day O'Connor, where I think the rest of the court really, they're lined up. They know where they want to go. And they're going to go that way almost no matter what. So that's why it's it's gotten so ugly that, yeah, this is where the leaks are going to start coming out. So Ellie, jump in. I'm like, David's our guest and he's the lawyer and he obviously knows more than we do. So, but jump in anytime you think yeah. you've got there's anything that you want to ask David or you get your own personal take on it. I think it's super ironic that like nobody really cares much about this, what the Supreme Court does and everybody is pretty respectful of like you said their their tight ship but i think it's a little ironic that like one of the most heated debate points that we have in this country was leaked from the supreme court like if it was anything else 
you know, I think it wouldn't have been as big of a deal that it was leaked, you know, and I, I think people are just, yeah, on, on, on guard now. Um, they're like, oh, what else are, what else are they going to leak? I mean, everybody wants to know the juicy topics that the Supreme Court is talking about. Yeah, what's about. next? But what's next? Also, yeah. right. I mean, did they, it's like, they all have jobs for life. It's not like they need job security. They don't need people to pay attention to them. Like, they're, they're not trying to, like, be on TMZ. Um, <laughs> but like David said, if now they're just more, pol- like, political than they are judicial. I mean, maybe, yeah, like you said, it's not, not your father's Supreme Court. Well, and the other thing was that, and I know it was a lot to read, 98 pages. I actually put it into a reader, Bernice's thing. I don't know if I sent it to you guys or not, but um, so I could listen to it in the car rather than actually have to read it. But so much of the, you know, it's, David, I had this perception that, you know, like you said, Cases have to move. They go through the state Supreme Courts or the district courts or the or the appellate courts before they get to the Supreme Court. You know, I, I thought they had an obligation to judge the case that was presented to them and that they accepted. But then it seems like, at least in this opinion, they don't really give a shit about the case. <laughs> the the fit, you know, can abortions happen after 15 weeks or not? It, they're really just interested in knocking down these old judgments. Am I crazy? Yeah, but I think that's kind of what they're supposed to do. Um, remember, these aren't the Supreme Court's not a trial court. They're not supposed right. to be a trier of fact. They're supposed to analyze the law. So, and I, as I, as I understand it, the reason they went about it that way was because the appellate court ruled that the abortion law was unconstitutional by using precedent Mm. saying Roe versus Wade made this law unconstitutional. And Casey, right? Well, yeah. So the only way the Supreme Court could overrule it was to overrule their prior cases. Okay. So I think they actually, I'm not saying I agree with the decision or not agree with the decision, but I understand why they did it in that way. That's the way they analyzed it, the way they went through the process. It seemed correct. Okay. So uh, I'm going to play a clip here. Um, it's from, uh, I don't have the date in front of me. So the now chief justice started out as an associate justice, like everybody else. And then Rehnquist passed away. And then Bush appointed him to be the chief. And he had a very famous confirmation hearing. And um, here's what he said in his very famous opening speech. Judges and justices are servants of the law, not the other way around. Judges are like umpires. Umpires don't make the rules, they apply them. The role of an umpire and a judge is critical. They make sure everybody plays by the rules, but it is a limited role. Nobody ever went to a ball game to see the umpire. Judges have to have the humility to recognize that they operate within a system of precedent shaped by other judges equally striving to live up to the judicial oath. And judges have to have the modesty to be open in the decisional process to the considered views of their colleagues on the bench. Mr. Chairman, when I worked in the Department of Justice in the office of the Solicitor General, it was my job to argue cases for the United States before the Supreme Court. 
I always found it very moving to stand before the justices and say, I speak for my country. But it was after I left the department and began arguing cases against the United States that I fully appreciated the importance of the Supreme Court in our constitutional system. Here was the United States, the most powerful entity in the world, aligned against my client. And yet all I had to do was convince the court that I was right on the law and the government was wrong, and all that power and might would recede in deference to the rule of law. That is a remarkable thing. It is what we mean when we say that we are a government of laws and not of men. It is that rule of law that protects the rights and liberties of all Americans. It is the envy of the world, because without the rule of law, any rights are meaningless. President Ronald Reagan used to speak of the Soviet Constitution, and he noted that it purported to grant wonderful rights of all sorts to people. But those rights were empty promises, because that system did not have an independent judiciary to uphold the rule of law and enforce those rights. We do, because of the wisdom of our founders and the sacrifices of our heroes over the generations to make their vision a reality. Sounded great! <laughs> Sounded great! And for the record, Roberts was confirmed by um, a 78 to 22 majority in the Senate. So that's pretty good. But, you know, in since then, a lot of cases that have decided were not just rulings on the on what was presented before them, like like Heller versus D.C. or or the thing with Hillary Clinton or whatever. I mean, can the court independently legislate from the bench? The court could do anything they want. Okay. They don't have a boss. <laughs> they don't answer to anybody. <laughs> they, they, nope. They don't face elections. There's really only one way they there, there's only one type of repercussion which is impeachment which that's only happened once really happen. in history right exactly so it's never going to happen there's a lifetime of lifetime employment lifetime job they do what they want when they want how they want and nobody has anything to say about it okay so, but so are you just saying now that there's like basically no scandal here like because the supreme court can just do whatever they want like it, like they can basically turn down any like they don't have to go back and look at precedent. They can overrule their previous rulings because they are like just this unchecked body. I mean, what does is like I think this revelation for a lot of people now is like, oh, wait, just because the Supreme Court voted something into law back in the 70s. Does that you know, what does that mean now for, you know, their rulings? Sorry, thought I didn't mean to step on you. No, 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 please. It, it, I, I, I invited it, you. It means it, it means nothing. I mean, there are there were talk a little couple of few years ago about could they expand the court? Can they change the appointments of the judges? There's, you know, of course, you recall the uh, of course, none of us recall it directly, but Roosevelt threatened packing the court during the New Deal. I do There's remember. Been, yeah. yeah, a little little, you know, push and pull on some of these things. But for the most part, they are an unelected body. That could do what they want. Yeah, it's very strange, and and I get I get it to an extent 
there's a reason for that. They don't want they want judges in theory to not be worried about elections and not to be worried about fundraising. And they want them to do the right thing without feeling the public pressure. So there is a probably a genuine reason for it. But yes, it could certainly lead to abuse. Absolutely. So and then but I think here's kind of what Ellie was saying. So but they they go into those nomination hearings, they take an oath, just like anybody else, right? They're going into a, any kind of a courtroom. They take an oath, and if they lie knowingly and willingly, it would be perjury, wouldn't it? So, and before you answer, David, so when I've been a poll worker since 2008, in other words, I work at those you know people where they cast their votes, and so that's a long time, but, and you have to go through classes and learn how to use the equipment and all these other laws and what can you say, what you can't say. Uh, and you're basically a volunteer and they give you 50 bucks or whatever for 17 hours of work. But you also have to sign, both of you have to sign a document and you have to take an oath on camera, which is basically the same oath you would take if you were a courtroom witness. And you say, if I do anything to falsify this election, I understand that I will go to jail for up to seven years and have a $350,000 fine. Okay, that's just some stupid idiot taking votes from, you know, all the dead people in Fairfax, Virginia, (laughs) casting a vote for Joe Biden. But anyways, you know, is there, I mean, you said there was only one guy or we agreed there was only one guy that got impeached. Is there if a guy lies to Congress and now, you know, for the last 40 years or whatever, we've been on C-SPAN. He just sits there and lies. He or she. And we can't get him on that. No, because for two reasons. Number one, I don't really think they're lying. If you're ever listening to. No, they're lawyers. They're very careful. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't they never say, for example. I will rule this way in this case. No, they'll never they say kinda, that. They're vague and they say, I'll consider everything. And like you said, balls and strikes, umpire. But here's the other thing. Even if they were saying things that were not vague, I don't see how that would be perjury. Because remember, perjury is you're lying about something. Typically, it's something that had already occurred. I'm not sure you'd be lying if you said something you may do in the future. And of course, even if you said that, even if it was true, well, they could be swayed, situations change, every case is different. So I certainly don't think it would ever be a perjury situation, either logically or legally. I don't see how that would even get anywhere near that level. Well, okay, let me give you an example. And let's, for our audience, I'm going to throw out a, a $2 word that this they use in the court and they use in the Judiciary Committee. It's, it's a concept called stare decisis, which is a Latin word that um, has something to do with precedent, right, David? But yeah, the, yeah. the whole idea yeah. is, well, maybe you should describe it for us. No, basically that courts respond to cases using precedents. When they write decisions, they use prior cases to justify their decision. So it's, it's from Marbury versus Madison. They start using uh, any, if you read any decision, it's never just a judge writing words. It's a judge explaining why they came up with that. And they do that by quoting and citing prior cases. 
So, and I have some clips that I can play, and and of course, you know, the uh, a lot of the clips I selected because he he's the author of the opinion, Justice um, Alito. Uh, in his confirmation hearing, a lot of people asked him about, well, do, do you believe in stare decisis? Is it is it important to you? And he would say, yeah, yeah, subtle law, blah, blah, blah. And so, no, he wouldn't say, yes, I would rule for or against Roe v. Wade. But he did say, I'm all about stare decisis. It's a very, very important thing. And yet, in the opinion that was released last week, it seemed like they just punted stare decisis right out of the ballpark. January 2005. Samuel Alito, then a judge on the appellate court in the Third Circuit, comments upon on the principle of ser decisis in his confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court. There are a number of factors that figure in the application of stare decisis in particular cases. There are factors that weigh in favor of stare decisis and there are factors that weigh against stare decisis. Factors that weigh in favor of stare decisis are things like the initial, what the initial vote on was on the case, the length of time that the case has been on the books, whether it has been reaffirmed, whether it has been reaffirmed on stare decisis grounds, whether there has been reliance, the nature and the extent of the reliance, whether the precedent has proven to be to be workable. Those are all factors that, that have to be considered on an but individual I, I, I'm basis. I'm asking you for the, what it would be the special justification that you mentioned this morning that would be needed to, over, to overcome precedence and reliance. Well, I think that what, what needs to be done is a consideration of all of the factors that are relevant. This is not a, a mathematical formula. It would be a lot easier for everybody if it were, but it's not. The Supreme Court has said that it, this is a question that calls for the exercise of judgment. And they've said there has to be a special justification for overruling a precedent. There is a presumption that precedents will be followed. But it is not, the, the rule of stare decisis is not an inexorable command. And I don't think anybody would want a rule in the area of constitutional law that, that pointed in that, that said that a constitutional decision once handed down can never be overruled. So it's a matter of weighing all of the, taking into account all of the factors and seeing whether there is a strong case based on all of the relevant... My question was a different one, respectfully. I'm sorry, Senator. It was, can you give me a few examples of what you think would qualify as a special justification for overruling prior precedent? And the real reason I ask you this is in my our private conversation, you said to me that you didn't think there had been any case you could think of that had been more tested than Roe. Well, so Roe has served. What, what special circumstance sorry. would there be which would overcome this kind, whether you call it super precedent or super duper or anything, but this kind of protracted testing over a 33-year period of time. Yeah, I mean, he's never, but to be fair, he's never going to come out and say, I'll never overrule a case. I'm never going to overrule prior decisions. So these guys are smart. They know how to speak. Right. I didn't see, I don't recall the entire um, hearing, but yes, he did say he, he does appreciate precedence and he appreciates the appellate's courts and, and the process. But he's never going. Nobody's ever going to say yes. But I'll never overrule a prior case. And he, I don't believe he said that in the hearing regarding 
prior abortion decisions either. And they're too smart for that. You don't recall three days in 2008 and 14 <laughs> hours of hearings? I don't know why you don't remember that. <laughs> I, I think it was too much of it, though, but yeah. it a while. Yeah. <clears throat> well, okay. Um, I don't know, Ellie, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's something like I'm obviously not an expert on. Also, in 2008, I was very distracted by other things that <laughs> were like not the Supreme Court justice hearings but um <laughs> you know in in doing i thought it was a top rated show better than you know um better than we like love raymond montana. i don't know yeah you yeah. hannah montana yeah <laughs> um but no i think like you know going kind of just diving into some of the legal terms for for this podcast like even just reviewing i guess i should say i didn't learn them for the first time but i probably i learned them a long time ago and forgot them um, <laughs> how important is it for the supreme court and for like judicial the judicial branch in, branch in general to look at precedent you know whenever they're deciding on cases and if they're going to take um, are if they claim to be an you know what they say like an originalist or a textualist when it comes to interpreting especially the Constitution you know how yeah. important is that for their current decisions and when they were confirmed you know when a lot of justices are confirmed they'll be asked you know are they an originalist are they a textualist and then as you mentioned too like they are always asked about whether or not they're going to follow precedent and they always say yes and so yeah if is the fact that they're not doing it now is that like a lie i i don't know i i don't think so yeah, is a lie something that's going to happen in the future? Because that would go on to intent, right? Like if you say, I'm going to, you know, go to the grocery store today, and then you don't do it. I mean, does that just mean that like, you didn't do it because you didn't have time? Or did you just say that in the first place, but you never had the intent of actually going? Yeah. And like David said, I mean, these guys are, I mean, they're not just lawyers. They're super lawyers like David. I mean, not only do they know how to speak themselves, but all they do all day long is listen to other lawyers. So they know how to do the dance with words and protect themselves, I imagine. Oh, they're good. They're good at what they do. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of these people were trial lawyers before they were judges. They argued cases in very, very big courts. So, yeah, they're very well experienced and well versed. And they've been through these hearings in the past as well, usually for their prior positions. So, right. not the first time, not the first rodeo. Right, 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 right. So, if we let's get back to the whole point of this episode was about this opinion. Now, you know, I don't know if I'm, we're not going to talk about whether it's a good opinion or a bad opinion, because again, it's, it's related to abortion and it's very controversial, but I guess on, I have a list of dumb questions, David, but I, since you are a lawyer, I, I was just, you know, I guess what's important to me because it seems like not only are they going to knock down these two precedents, you know, in this particular category of, of abortion, but it seems like the logic that they're using is also unique and, and potentially self-destructive in terms of what the court has been leaning on for the past 200 plus years. But what do you think? I mean, before I get to my dumb questions, uh, Ellie already mentioned textualism and originalism, which, which we know Alito has said over and over again, including this confirmation hearings, he's a big fan of. Uh, Scalia, the guy who's passed away that 
he was the one that really popularized that idea that the only way you can look at the Constitution is to read it absolutely literally it's not a living document you can't you can't read between the lines and originalism goes even further it says well what did the guys who wrote it actually think it meant forget what they wrote what did they think they wrote so i don't know what are your thoughts there well you know textualism and originalism here is it's a little bit different i think of textualism um as the exact words of the Constitution, word for word verbatim, what were they saying? Right. And I think of originalism as, okay, what were the framers thinking when they wrote this? Right. In and, 1787 and 1791. Exactly. And, yeah. and what they meant at that time. And that gets tricky. There's a lot oh, of yeah. work. You could read their writings from back then and, and the different conventions. Um, so it gets a little bit tricky. And of course, you know, how does that apply to today? And that's what my concern, if you're a big fan of those philosophies, is that those, the framers back then didn't know, you know, and it's a different world, cruel and unusual punishment, you know, a little different back then than now, right? I mean, segregation wasn't a thing back then what was their intention back then on segregation it wasn't an issue um you know right to bear arms let's assume for a minute that there is a right for an individual to bear arms i know there's a frame of thought that it's more for militias and states but let's put that aside for a minute you know Mm -hmm. framers knew about muskets they didn't know about uh, automatic weapons grenades nuclear weapons you know these aren't things they really considered so that's the only concern you kind of have to have about some of this uh, originalism thought is they had no idea what would be going on years and years later. So how do you reconcile their thought process to the real world today? And that's always the concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, when you look, you know, we, I, we said early on that they only take about 85 cases a year. The majority of those cases aren't you know, these hot topics like abortion or religion, they're actually technology cases, patent cases, stuff, trademark cases, stuff that nobody could imagine. Could you imagine space travel in 1787 or cell phones or, um, you know, a million other computers, a million other things that this is what everybody is, you know, all these really, really arcane cases and I'm like, well, how can you possibly even textually, originalistly <laughs> deal with those things? I don't know. I have no idea how they how they justify that. They don't. I think their fear is, you know, the other extreme is like judicial activism. Will we make our own rules and ignore the Constitution? So, you know, I think it's a pushback from that. But, you know, how far do you go on each side? You want to have the Constitution. You want to follow the Constitution. But at the same time, how do you go by what people thought in the 1700s to apply to today? It's kind of impossible. So even if you are a textualist and put yourself in their shoes, David, so you've got this thing called the due process clause. And it says, and it's the only clause that appears in the Constitution twice, in both the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. And I think the only difference 
is in the 14th Amendment, they say they add the word no state. But basically it says no person shall be deprived life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Now, they could have theoretically you know, put a, like a footnote or an asterisk and had an appendix, and they could have listed everything that meant life, that meant liberty. Properties may be a little more self-evident, but I don't know about the other things, but those other decisions on abortion were about liberty. They found a um, right to privacy within the notion of liberty. Yeah, look, I mean, both uh, both clauses... Yeah. Those seven conversative justices in seven nineteen. Look, both both due process. They're almost exactly the same. You're right, word for word. One mentioned states, state one does not. I read something about Justice uh, Fields Frankfurter said to suppose that the due process of law meant one thing in the Fifth Amendment and another in the Fourteenth is too frivolous to require elaborate rejection. So it's really mm. it's, it's essentially the same thing. So yeah, I mean. Uh, it's there. It's how you want to interpret it. That's what a judge does. They come out and they look at something and they decide on their own. And, you know, a lot of these things, you know, when I went to law school, uh-huh. when I started law school, and when you go there, you start reading cases, decisions, and you read the decision. And I would say, oh, that's a good point. Good argument. Then I would read the dissent. And I would say, you know, that's a good argument, too. <laughs> So my point is... And then you say, wow, it must be hard to be a judge. <laughs> yes. Or maybe it's easy because my point is you can almost pick out the decision you want to make, who you want to find it for, and then put together a very good legal argument about why you made that choice. You see, like you mentioned the 14th Amendment. Well, what what is in there? What should that apply to? Well, I guess whatever I wanted to apply to, I can make a good argument for well, that's the thing. That's where it sounds like, okay, I'm a textualist, but I can make this thing sound any way I want to. If I'm a smart lawyer like you are, David, it's like, look, I can go in there and defend Hitler if I have to. I, <laughs> I can get away with anything. He was cool. He liked dogs. He was a vegetarian, right? So <laughs> He had the mustache? Uh, he's you know, really sporting this cool mustache. So, I get, well, the other thing I was going to uh, – the very first like big decision that kind of elevated the Supreme Court, you know, if you just read – if you're a textualist and you read the original Constitution word for word, article, you know, Article 1 talks about Congress. Article 2 talks about the president. Article 3 talks about the judiciary. They say there will be a Supreme Court and this is what they're going to do. Bing, 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 bing. Nothing in there about judicial review, blah, blah, blah. But then there was this decision in 1803 that was very important in a number of ways. But one of them was that it established something that was not actually textually written in the Constitution itself, but this principle of judicial review where the Supreme Court could, could knock down a law that they didn't like because they thought it was constitutional, whether it was a federal law or even a state law. So do you think that applies here at all? I mean, but the, the fact that they're leaning completely on textualism, does that undermine the idea of pulling Marbury versus Madison out of their little fannies back in 1803? 
I don't think so. You know, okay. in certain ways, it might put them out of business, and that's kind of what they do. <laughs> You're kind of getting rid of your own job. Well, that's um, the thing. Yeah. I mean, what are they going to do if they can't do that? But it wasn't in the original Constitution. But if you're, I, I, if I keep calling myself a textualist, it's like, okay, when is we going to resolve this contradiction? Well, you know, I, I think he's more of an original. But, you know, Justice Alito and a lot of the interpretations of the 14th Amendment, they seem to put a lot of emphasis on what has always been part of our country's history. What have we have always done? So. I think things like precedence and judicial and Marbury versus Madison, I think that's so old that would go against the whole, well, it's been like that for so long. We're not going to change it. So okay. I think it's been explained. I'm not sure if he went through it, but there are certain rights we get in the Constitution, right, that are listed. Those are easy. Then you have what's called the unenumerated rights. Well, what is that? It's not in the Constitution, but it's something that, as it's defined, must be strongly rooted in the U.S. history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. I, I, it's defined as something that we've always done or, or have always recognized. So, for example, in this case, Justice Alito said, you know, abortion is not a right. Why is it not a right? Because back in the 1800s, there were a lot of abortion statutes. There were a lot of states that had abortion, laws abortion against was, it. Yeah, abortion was illegal. Right. right. So right. he's basically saying, well, because it wasn't back then, then yeah, then it's not one of those rights in the Constitution that should be upheld now. Now, the reason it's such a tricky thing, a tricky road to go down is, well, not really true. I mean, there was some abortion back then. There was abortion allowed in most states. Um, in the 18th on. century, there was. Yeah. 1600s and the 1700s. So yeah, it was really was- only during the uh, the extreme religious conservative movement of which abolition was a part, which helped cause the Civil War, that also was against, well, they were against drinking. They were against abortion. They were against the slavery. They were against gambling. They were against everything. But, but before that, you know, it was around. No, but even later on in the 1800s, a lot of states allowed abortion really early in the pregnancy. So we get back to what his analysis is, is, well, you know, who's to say what is rooted in U.S. history and tradition? Mm-hmm. You Something you say is rooted, I might say is not. So that's where this whole thing is open to interpretation and I always think any judge on any side of the spectrum could use the 14th Amendment and claim, yeah, this is a right. This is something that is enumerated because it is in our history. Who's to tell me no? There's no strict definition of that. So, Ellie, you said you became Ellie Woods in the movie Legally Blonde. I think there's also a hit <laughs> Broadway play. And and it's, it was that the way she's pronounced is the, it, Ellie and Ellie. I, I think it's you, L. L. Woods. Oh, yeah, L. Okay. L. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so you you got your degree from Harvard. What? Like it's hard. But I mean, what do you, I mean? Do you have a view on all this nonsense? Marbury Vanison, Fourteenth Amendment, uh, Equal Protection Clause, Due Process Clause. Yeah, I guess if anything, it's I. I'm, I don't have like a specific opinion. I think I'm just 
like your average citizen who's like, who didn't go to law school, um, who's like a little confused because I always just assumed that whatever the Supreme Court decided that it was just like signed and sealed and like that was it for forever, you know, like the Supreme Court can't touch them. And I, yeah, they can do whatever they want, but once they do something like Roe v. Wade in 1972, that's it. You can't touch it ever again. And so I think that's where, like, I am a little confused. Maybe I just don't know enough about the judicial system, but I just, I thought that the Supreme Court being supreme, like even more supreme than a burrito at Taco Bell, like, I just assumed (laughs) that's it. (laughs) So baby love my baby. Yeah, they're the supremiest of supreme burrito courts. And so I'm like, I'm just like, I I didn't know that they could just re like, you know, reverse what they did 50 years ago. I didn't know that. So that's where I'm just a little confused. Well, so nobody, everybody feels, you know, what's funny. I think Justice Roberts agrees with you, Ellie. I really do. I really, because if you listen to what he said over the years, Justice Roberts, you know, we were talking about his his hearing and all that. He's balls versus strikes. Balls versus, that's all we're doing. Balls and strikes. But you know something? He is kind of like that. You know, remember, as far as I know, he wasn't on board with this Judge Justice Alito decision, right? He is. He's not listed. No, no he's, he's one not. of the dissenters. He, yeah. He's, uh, to, to his credit, he cares more about the legacy of the court, how they look, are they making decisions on the law. He is the kind of guy, and again, to his credit, that will vote against something he might agree with personally if he thinks it violates the law or the Constitution. So. He is probably the most unhappy person right now about this decision. Is is Justice Roberts? You know, the left side of the court might be happy in a sense because it's going to get people up, you know, excited. The right court is excited to have this done and finally get rid of Roe versus Wade. I think Justice Roberts is miserable about this. He doesn't want this. He wants a professional court that follows the law, that doesn't do things and go off the rails. And he's the one. He's the one. Yeah. And to compare it to, um, you know, Justice Roberts, like confirmation hearing in 2005 with the whole umpire strikes versus balls thing. I mean, I think like no umpire is going back to that game, you know, 20 years ago that they called saying like, you know, I think we should actually I think that I think that runner should have been safe. So let's go back and like the Mets should have won the World Series back then, shouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, and like they're yes. like reopening the game. Like I just thought I just thought the Supreme Court when they made these decisions, I just thought it was like done, you know? Yeah, just a it's a sealed game. They you know, the Cubs won the World Series or whatever, and then you're done. Like nobody gets to go back and question it or, you know, do an instant replay or do a replay 10 years later and see if they, you know, made the right call. Like, no, it's just, it's just done. So that's a fantastic analogy. Actually. That was great. I may have to use that one. Good one. Oh, thanks. That's right. perfect. I like that. Go, <laughs> go back and change the game as an umpire. Yeah. It's kind of tough to do. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and, and, and now at least the coach can object to certain kinds of calls and then they call New York, right? The guys, they go in the corner and they put the headsets on and they call New York and we all sit around for two minutes and wait to see what New York says. But not decades later. They don't do that. I mean, you know. Not that. De- no, it has to be minutes, like uh, right when the thing is done. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a great point. So, 
I don't know. I mean, I guess we've sort of reached the end of the line here. What I mean, what do you guys have any predictions on what's going to happen? I mean, is this thing going to go through? And if so, what does that do to the rest of the law? I, I think it'll go through. Um, okay. I think it'll be a 5-4 decision. I don't think Roberts will go along with it. And I think you're going to have half the country with very strict abortion laws. And I just think it's going to be some blowback politically around the country. I don't know how much. And the, the, Well, do you think it could... I mean, people have been predicting that the Democrats are going to lose both the House and the Senate. Do you think that that may switch it up, that they won't lose the House and the Senate? I think their odds got better. Plot twist. Wow. That, yeah, you're right. That could be a reason that people start to vote Democratic now in the midterms. Whoa. Oh, yeah. It's get some of these swing states, and if it's close, and all of a sudden abortion's banned, and people get excited. You remember, for the last how many years, it was the anti-abortion movement that had all the enthusiasm to get where they want to get. Now that they won... And the other side never thought it would actually happen. Now, they're going to be the ones with the enthusiasm. So I do think it's going to be... Right. I mean, that's like, okay, well, wow, we've got this great issue and we use it to rile people up and we raise money. And now, oops, it's gone. Now what do we do? Hell, do we have any other good issues? Oh, yeah, we hate Mexicans. Yeah, yeah, we hate those guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but you're you're right. They need another issue to jump on. And then, of course, you know, this is scandal sheet. So we have to talk about a couple of things. What... Yep. Can happen next, right? If the court could do this, what will they do next? Now, I'm not so sure they're going to go back and, and, and overturn Marbury versus Madison, but. Well, what about Brown versus education? What about Loving Virginia? What about Griswold, which, which was about contraception? Um, a married couple can have contraception. Yeah, I, oh, my God. I don't think that's going to come back. I think that that would be okay. too much public. Up, that, that would not work. But, Ellie is smiling, and, and, so she's and, like, "There's not forget about no, it." Any, <laughs> I, mean, I, think, know, I think the big takeaway from all of this is that we okay. need to start a porta potty company because <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be protests out the wazoo everywhere, especially. I don't. They may even need to start have a whole new building, which is nothing but bathrooms. I, you know, I don't know if the porters are going to do it. Oh, the contraception contraception thing comes through. Yes, there will be both parties. It'll be it will be it'll be a bipartisan issue. (laughs) So I don't think we'll have a problem there. No, I mean gay marriage that that could be bye bye. Oh yeah, right, gay marriage, and that's something that's um, not as maybe. you know, the other ones we mentioned are probably 95% approved, 98% approved by the country. You know, gay marriage, you know, the majority approve it, but you know, maybe not much more than abortion. So It was a 5-4 decision, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't like, although when it happened, I was like, really? I didn't think this would happen in my lifetime. But when it did happen, everybody was like, okay. It just, I mean, I thought there was going to be some gigantic explosion of protests. And the thing was, everybody that was sort of against... Gay marriage, like the Republicans, I mean, I live in Fairfax County, it's a very Republican kind of an area. They were like, you know what, half my friends are gay, I don't give a shit. Exactly. (laughs) And once the cat's out of the bag, it's kind of hard, you get used to it. Look, I'm going to compare it to baseball. I hate the DH, despise the DH in baseball. I know you do. You know something, it's been a month or two with the DH in the National League. 
kind of used to it by now, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> you kind of get used. So game, even if you're against gay marriage, after a while, you're okay. My friend, him, he's gay. Well, he's how gay come people? I mean, that's a good point. But how come people didn't get used to abortion? Like that first, like we said, like early on, that first ten years, you really didn't. I mean. I was just a little kid, so I wasn't paying attention. But I can look back in history. There wasn't really many people talking about it. Because there until... wasn't Twitter. Well, that's part no, of even it. Before then... that, no, before, even before Twitter. There, I was, when I was in school in Buffalo, that's when they had a group called Operation Rescue. I don't know if you recall them. And they used to block abortion clinics. And this is back in the early 90s. Way before social media. Okay, that's the nineties. I mean, yeah. um, this really exploded as I understand it, or and recall it because I do remember Ronald Reagan. That was the eighties. That's when it really, uh, because there was this three-legged stool supposedly in terms of his coalition of supporters. It was people who were war hawks. They really hated the Soviet Union. There were people who were evangelicals, conservative Christians. And then the other people were uh, the anti-tax people. You know, they wanted to cut. That was his coalition of people that he put together. And um, the evangelicals, their biggest single issue was abortion. You know, but I get it in a sense because the reason this is different than all the other issues is because if you believe what they believe, it's just murder. You're killing right. a life. So I get why this is going to be a lot more of a heated issue than everything else we talked about. So that's well, why it's very hard. Oh, I was just going to say, well, in the I think the 70s were a pretty liberal time in U.S. history. And then like the 80s, you know, people started to veer a little more towards the right. So I think that's why it just Swing the other way. a yeah. bigger deal in the 80s. Like they kind of, there probably just wasn't a lot of media surrounding it in the 70s anyway. And then, you know, in that in the eighties, that's when people you know started to pay a little more attention. So you're right. Moral majority; those groups came along. They got pretty. Big. The moral majority. Oh yeah, Pat Robertson. You know, they became had a bit. Remember those guys? Yeah, yeah. A big following. You know, so yeah, that's kind of what happened. And, and this is something that's not going away. Yeah, never going away. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what other episodes the Supreme Court leaks provide for us. well on that note i think it's a good time to uh thank our friend uh super lawyer david grover again ellie thank you bernice thank you and uh i think that's it guys thank you very much we're all gonna see what happens (laughs) we're resting our case on this episode folks We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at ScandalSheetPod.com, Facebook or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.